0: while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. Sometimes we all need a carrot that's dangling right in front of our noses to help get us out that door on a consistent basis and reach some of our goals. And so I want to dangle a little carrot in front of you here today, and I want you to put this on your calendar and join me. I am so... (laughs) Over the top excited to invite you all to join Team Plant Strong. It is our new national movement to celebrate how the benefits of a whole food, plant strong lifestyle can keep us active and allow us to move our bodies and feel utterly fantastic. I want to invite you to train with the team and complete your choice of either a 5K, a half marathon, or even a full marathon, you take your pick of the litter. Now, our first event is going to take place here in Austin, Texas, on February 19th. And you're all invited to come and finish the race in my hometown of eclectic, iconic, and the capital of Texas, Austin. But, hey, I completely understand if you can't make the trip, you can still complete the goal virtually and earn a medal from this iconic first event. We'll also send you our Team Plan Strong racing shirt and you'll get access to our training plans, coaches, and everything that's inside our private community. If you've never run before, hey, no sweat. You just get over here. Walkers, you're absolutely welcome. Beginners are more than welcome. And season runners, absolutely, we would love for you to partake as we all work together towards this common goal. I can't wait to meet all of you. Come on now. Join Team Plan Strong at planstrongfoods.com slash team.
1: And so I woke up and my whole body was just like beating against the bed. Mm. And I had never felt this before. I was like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? Like everything's beating. And I heard this like whistling sound and it was my hair that was like, Like, just brushing ever so subtly. Like, I don't know if anyone else would ever have heard anything. I mean, it probably happens to anyone with a little bit of long hair. But they probably aren't aware of it. But I just had such full awareness of everything. This is the gift of everything I've been through. And it was, like, singing. And it was just, like, this harmonious sound. And my whole body was warm for the first time in so many years that it was just, like, this immense sense of being fully alive i describe mm. it as like my cells were oscillating at this higher frequency and i think this is very cool and there's something with this that has to do with whole food plant-based nutrition i think too which this may sound a little weird to people but it, it was the coolest thing ever like just i was alive and more alive than anyone has ever experienced and i haven't lost that
0: And becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with, we welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, my Plan Strong brothers and sisters, cousins, one and all, in the spirit of Thanksgiving and gratitude, I wanted to reshare this powerful episode featuring Dr. Don Musalem. Don is as you're going to here just an extraordinary individual she's a board certified lifestyle medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic Jacoby Center for Breast Health where she works with breast cancer patients and their oncologists along with other specialists to heal and thrive using the pillars of lifestyle medicine don's own survival story is truly one for the ages she herself is a cancer survivor and a heart transplant recipient. And just one year after her heart transplant, she ran a full marathon. Since then, believe it or not, she's actually also recently completed the Chicago Marathon as well. No one exudes gratitude like Dawn, which is why it's especially important today on Thanksgiving. And speaking of gratitude, I'd like to give a big thank you to all of you for listening, watching, and sharing this podcast. Your kindness is not lost on me for a second or the whole entire Plan Strong team. So thank you and enjoy. Don, I am... There is no place I would rather be right now than here talking to you. And I want you to know that in, in researching your story... And the absolute harrowing, and I mean harrowing roller coaster ride that you have been on in the second half of your life, uh, I want to hear all about it. And I can't believe that you are still smiling and you have this insane love of life. And I think it's a testament to just your your spirit uh, that I just want to I want to understand it and I want to tackle it. So thank you for being with me today.
1: Thank you, Rip. I am extremely excited to be here for so many reasons. And uh, you are right. I have just this immense level of love and energy for life, but I've always had that. So that's what we're going to talk about.
0: <laughs> yes, we are. Uh, so what time did you wake up this morning?
1: <laughs> <laughs> 354. <laughs> that's because Three. I was so excited. <laughs> <laughs>
0: 354. But what time do you usually set the alarm clock for? Four (laughs) oh seven. Four oh seven. so you were you were you were officially if i could do the math on that about 13 minutes so so excited that you know that's how much earlier you got up uh wow so why why in the world are you getting up at 407 what do you you have to run or what's up i
1: have always gotten up at 4 in the morning. My entire life, even as a young girl, probably not quite that early, but even as a young girl, I would often wake up at 5 a.m. My family, we were all morning people. We were the kind of people that would drive everyone else nuts. But yeah, our our lights were on in our house, super bright and early. So that is just how I have been since day one. And I love it. I love the morning. So I try to get my workouts in in the morning, but I usually wake up and I get work done. You know, I have a lot of different projects that that I love. And so it's quiet time. I review my patients for the morning. And then I usually work out like about an hour or two before I need to see patients,
0: man. And so what time are you usually like in the the hospital seeing patients?
1: You know, it's different for me now. So my medical practice is a 100% virtual. Oh,
0: my goodness gracious. Do you like that?
1: It's so interesting. So I love it. So My practice at this point is 100% lifestyle medicine in the cancer center working with breast cancer patients. And so they're not just local patients. Most of my patients actually are from out of town out of state and a lot of them are even from out of the country and so it works out wonderful not just for me but for the patients so oftentimes i'm seeing patients i have on my running shorts i still have on my running (laughs) shoes and i may have changed my top or i may just have wore a colorful top to work out in and it works out good because they understand it's the lifestyle and that's what we're going to be talking about so it's been great or you know i can have a patient if someone cancels i can go get on the bike or do whatever it is or if i want to go get my sweet potato i can go downstairs and get my sweet potato so i can kind of yeah. just really live a healthy life and work virtual and it's wonderful so i enjoy it
0: wow um now when did this this whole like p- telemedicine take over for you is it like during covid that you transitioned to this like has it been two three years
1: Very interesting. Well, it has a lot to do with my story, how I actually transitioned. But COVID for me was actually a silver lining because we were trying to figure out capabilities for me to do virtual work. But the billing was very complicated until COVID. Mm. And so now with COVID, it has been seamless with my ability to do virtual work and bill insurance companies like I always have with complete reimbursement. It's been amazing and even though I work in that lifestyle medicine arena for cancer patients, I have knock on wood not had any issues with insurance reimbursement which has been really rewarding to get these patients the help they are desiring and they're seeking mm. out I mean they're thirsty for this sort of discussion with a medical professional to learn more. There's so much out there for them there's so many great books now, but it really helps them to have it individualized when we get to meet one-on-one, especially with their particular disease or the treatment that they're going to be receiving since it is in, in the breast cancer center.
0: Yeah. So how do these patients find you? Is it, I mean, is it through the Mayo Clinic? That it they, is. So, and then they refer these patients to you?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So early on in my career, I was actually a hospital physician. And I love that. And in 2015, the director of the Breast Center had approached me and asked me if I would be interested in transitioning over to the Breast Center to kind of help to kind of reorganize the program. And at that time, I also had asked if I could potentially create an integrative medicine and health program within the Breast Center. And it was built on a foundation of lifestyle medicine. And so that's exactly what I did. So since 2015, 2016, in the breast center, I was doing a little bit of lifestyle medicine. But at that time, you know, it just, it, it there really wasn't the um, staffing for me to do it 100%. Mm-hmm. And the patients just weren't quite as aware of it at that time. And so I would say from 2015, 2016, up until about 2018, it was like slowly the the demand started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And my confidence in the practice and how it would kind of flow also grew. And it was around that time that I also got board certified in lifestyle medicine. Even though I had always practiced this sort of medicine um, in my career, it just the American College of Lifestyle Medicine really did afford me a little bit more of a formal approach to the patient. I always, prior to that, was a little bit hesitant, honestly, to go whole food plant-based with my patients. I would go almost there, but I would be too scared to push too hard on it. But following my board certification, I became very um, encouraging for my patients to go in that direction if they were willing to. And so There are just so many amazing stories every day. I mean, honestly, I wake up four in the morning, super excited to start my work day because (laughs) my patients give me so much energy. I think I give them a lot of energy, but they give me back so much energy. These individuals are so incredibly inspiring. A lot of them are coming in already doing a lot of things pretty, you know, correct. But one thing that I do see in my practice is some people have such turbulence about eating healthy. They just don't have a healthy relationship about it. And so it's really exciting to be able to be there with them and teach them kind of the love and harmony and how they can kind of really use that food as a springboard to ignite that vitality. And it's so hopeful for them because in that same department where they're seeing their breast surgeon, their Mm -hmm. breast radiation oncologist, their medical oncologist, um, they're able to meet with me. And we're able to talk about how they live and how they can live and flourish both during chemotherapy and after. And that's what's just been so incredibly exciting. And I have some flourish stories.
0: Oh, I can't wait to hear about some of them. What's interesting to me is that I don't think it was too long ago that the Mayo Clinic was not pointing patients to a whole food plant based diet because Mm -hmm. um, and this may sound not correct. But what I heard from a person that went to the Mayo Clinic was that he asked his doctor, you know, I've heard that a whole food plant-based diet is the best Mm -hmm. thing for what I'm recovering for. I think it was heart surgery. And uh, the doctor said, yes, it is. But that is not the protocol that we're pushing at the Mayo Clinic. And this is probably back in 2012, 13, right? They saw Mm -hmm. it as a little bit too preventative, a little bit too extreme. So I'm really glad to hear Mm-hmm. That that the tides are changing uh, when it comes to that. Yeah,
1: you're exactly right. And I remember. Going to the American Institute for Cancer Research, a meeting, this was probably, I think it was around 2018, and that was exactly one greeting I got is, I'm surprised you're here. Mayo Clinic doesn't seem like the type that's as interested in, you know, prevention and lifestyle. It seems yeah. like they're really just doing these really advanced therapies. And we we are very motivated to have that different image. And the integrative medicine program has been a part of Mayo Clinic for over 20 years. So it's always mm-hmm. been there. It's just, you know, a lot of patients come, they receive that world-class curative therapy that wasn't offered anywhere else in the world and then they go back home without realizing we do have these services when patients ask. However, the doctors have to have awareness and the doctors have to have some invested interest and belief in this too. So What I am super excited about is I am currently starting in August of this year, starting a lifestyle medicine residency curriculum across the enterprise. So we have three residency locations or we have three clinics. You know, we have Mayo Clinic Rochester, Mayo Clinic Jacksonville, Florida, Mayo Clinic Arizona. So we are going to offer as an elective opportunity for all of our residents to have the opportunity to learn this curriculum, which will go deep into whole food, plant-based nutrition, exercise, social connection, stress management. So excited, but the residents are excited. So it's really amazing to see the enthusiasm and the interest that the residents have. So I'm really blessed to be able to be a part of starting that program and working directly with these young doctors to kind of change that foundational thought process.
0: Oh, uh, that, that, the- that, that is so heartwarming to hear that, um, that... These residents are learning about this. It sounds like maybe they're embracing it. I know Dr. Mm-hmm. Clapper. Do you know Dr. Michael Clapper at all?
1: Yes. Who
0: is, you know, his? he is involved with a nonprofit now called Moving Medicine Forward. And all he does is go out and visit medical schools and talk to the medical students. So to hear about that, to hear about <clears throat> this with the residents, it is absolutely heartwarming. I love it. Don, let me I, I we need to get to your story because we could just talk about this forever. But, you know, um, when in your life did you know that Don Musalem wants to be a doctor?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. So, okay, I I was like four or five years old. And I when people say, What do you want to be when you grow up? I would say, I want to live to be a hundred. And I want to be a doctor because I, you know, I knew I'd have to like kind of learn something. I, I loved helping people, helping animals, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. Yeah. so it was, you know, a few years after that that I just became enamored with Willard Scott on the Today Show 100th birthday celebration. So at an early age, my family was actually really healthy. You know, the the family that wakes up early, we ate our healthy food really early too. That's probably what we had so much energy, all of us. I have the best family.
0: Now you weren't, but, but you weren't eating plants back then, were you? You yeah. were when you were I four, would. five, and six?
1: Oh, yeah. My family was super healthy at a young age. I would say one of my favorite childhood memories was going to the health food store and going into the refrigeration section where you would open it, and you would smell like the oatmeal and the greens. And so, yes, so we were not whole food plant only at the time, but we were whole food, whole yeah. food plant um, predominant. But we would have some fish, and we would have some chicken, but we had our, like our own uh Butcher, you know, we had someone where we got that meat fresh if we ever ate it. But then I was vegetarian in high school. I would have some yogurt and then I was vegan in college for some points of that. Um, And then as I was going through college, I got active in fitness contests. And then a personal trainer kind of corrupted my brain. It's like, you need more protein. You're never going to put on muscle. You're never going to win contests if you don't get more muscle. So guess what? This girl... Started to eat a lot of chicken, and I started to eat beef and stuff like
0: that. <laughs> okay, and so, so, so that's
1: what kind of happened. Yeah. So I had these little short window of time when I didn't eat as healthy. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Let me. So let me ask you this. You mentioned Willard Scott uh, and how you wanted to live to be a hundred. Um, and so, were you a fan of the Smucker's jar and? the the so that was your goal right to be somebody yeah. to, that's on to the smucker's, smucker's
1: jar, jar. Yeah.
0: yeah so don't you think looking back on it cuz i i used to love that segment too uh, that that was the most brilliant marketing campaign ever by smuckers i mean I who doesn't that. want to have some smuckers after seeing uh, somebody that's a hundred on the jar it's like oh yeah you associate living long with smuckers
1: It was great Uh, marketing and just so, and I love that you remember it too, because I share that story, and so many people they kind of look at me like, I don't know what she's talking about. I'm like, how do you not know this? It was so impressionable.
0: Totally. You know,
1: and when I was young, I I would read all about Linus Pauling. I had that book, Life Extensions. That was like in junior high, high school, I was reading this stuff. I was a big runner back then. you know, I joke when, when my friends were eating like bread of wonder, you know what I mean? I was eating like food for life, like sprouted bread. And I just, I love this stuff. It was just right up my alley. It energized me. And so it was always something I was just really um, Uh, interested in. So I studied nutrition and exercise physiology in undergrad. And when I went to medical school, You know, I first went to naturopathic school with the intention on doing very, very holistic care, but it turned out to be a little bit more of an alternative focus than I really wanted. So I transitioned to osteopathic medical school where I really had a a strong foundation of of nutrition education in my medical school. I was very fortunate to have that. Mm. Um, So that's you know, how I ended up becoming a doctor, I ended up going through to osteopathic school. And I did my clinical trainings at Mayo Clinic as part of the osteopathic school in Arizona, and then eventually transitioned to, to Mayo Clinic, Florida.
0: Yeah. So now, at the age of 26, <clears throat> you got diagnosed with stage four cancer, if I'm not mistaken,
1: mm-hmm. right?
0: And yeah. so and, and you were, you were in medical school at the time? Is that correct?
1: I was. So, you know, a few weeks into medical school and, you know, again, I was running, I was climbing mountains every day, very, very fit. And I was, I was eating my healthy diet at that time. I was away from the fitness competitions. And I noticed that I just couldn't perform the way I used to. So I would get a little shortness of breath, a little cough. What is going on? I saw a doctor. He said, it's nothing. It's asthma. I saw another doctor's symptoms getting worse. Same thing. Nothing. It's asthma. Finally saw another doctor and that doctor's like, it's in your head. This happens to all medical students. And just a few days later, I'm walking up the stairs after class, going to my apartment and I collapsed. I went to the emergency room. They did a chest X-ray and there was a huge mass in my chest, enormous mass. And it had collapsed my left lung. It was pushing on my major vessels. And so they had to take me to urgent surgery. They did the preliminary pathology and I'll never forget it. Cause I woke up and one of the medical students who was in my medical school was there crying like over me, just sobbing. I'm thinking, Ugh, this is not a good sign. And then the doctor came in the room and this was actually Thanksgiving day, November 23rd, 2000. So the doctor came in the room and he was on call and he, he was kind of a grumpy doctor. He wasn't, he wasn't very nice. And I remember him just kind of like throwing this diagnosis out there. I'm like, how is this possible? Like I have really like lived out my, my parent, my dad's next to me who here, he's like always given me this like path of hell for life. And his 26 year old daughter who's in a few months into medical school gets diagnosed with cancer. And they go on and they say, you know, this is stage four cancer based on the imaging and the size of the tumor and the extension and the other places that it was showing um, its involvement. And so it just took us back, you know. And And, you know, I remember them saying that if I wasn't going to receive treatment, that I would have months to live. Like I needed treatment and they needed to start it immediately. And then the next thing out of his mouth was I needed to quit medical school. And I'm like, he obviously does not know me. So, you know, that really like triggered this autonomous motivation to steer my own ship. And I was like, thank goodness he was on call. And my real oncologist came in, you know, the the following day. And and then we got a really good treatment plan. He was really optimistic and upbeat, but I started chemo just a few short days thereafter. There wasn't time for fertility preservation. There wasn't really time to think about it. You know, it was just like, okay, this is what we have to do. I want to live. I'm going to stay in medical school. We're going to do part of this my way. We'll do part of it your way. And so Mm. start a treatment.
0: Wow. So you came up with a plan. And then you also, in addition to the chemo, did you also have anything else like uh, radiation or bone marrow transplant or stuff like that?
1: Yeah, great question. So so they did... Four months, four cycles of what's called CHOP chemotherapy, which is very high-intensity chemotherapy. The first cycle was in the hospital. The remaining ones I was able to do in the outpatient setting. After that, they had talked with me and my family, letting us know that because of the stage of the cancer and how advanced it was, because it had gone on for those several months that people just weren't really paying attention to it, the doctors that I was seeing, that I would need a bone marrow transplant. <clears throat> so that meant more chemotherapy that was very high dose that was given to you in the hospital. So I was in the hospital for a month. And then that's followed by a bone marrow transplant where they pull your immune cells all the way down to zero and then they give you back cells to give you back a healthy immune system Mm -hmm. and then that was followed by radiation therapy for two months but what was fascinating and you know i'm sure a lot of listeners are like okay uh, maybe this isn't the best person to have on here she lives healthy her whole life and she ends up with cancer but I'll tell you, I've had people say, how do you think you got cancer? And I think I know how I got cancer as a little girl, you know, maybe not little, but you know, when I was in elementary school, there was a Creek behind her house that I would play in all the time, like hours, I would be in this Creek and it was a runoff from corn where oh. I'm quite certain there was probably pesticides, you know, and we don't know in life. I mean, things happen. I, I mean, quite frankly, for me, cancer was the biggest teacher of life. I mean, Mm -hmm. the post traumatic growth I experienced for this was immense. It was, it was, it's phenomenal. I would never trade in what I went through. So it's all okay. But what I will say is this during my chemotherapy, I would see other patients, you know, you sit in these big chairs, there's other people all around you. They were so sick. I was not sick. I was still running. I was still mountain climbing. I was climbing Camelback Mountain twice a day with hemoglobins of like five. And, I felt great. I my senses were heightened. You know, when someone would see a green tree, no, no, my green tree was like vibrant, like it was just (laughs) wow. So my life experience was so heightened during that window of time. It really taught me how to live, and that's where I think we can take adversity. And when we, you know, read about post traumatic growth, people may or may not really understand what that means, but there is such opportunity to learn. From adversity, and we just have to accept that we can't run from it. Mm-hmm. We need to truly accept that, and so that was really, um, like I said, such a teacher. Well, life.
0: well you've had many teachers uh, <laughs> because of all the experiences you've been through, and we're going to get to all those. Now, stage four. What 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 type of cancer was it that you were diagnosed with?
1: Yeah, it was a diffuse. B cell non Hodgkin's lymphoma.
0: Okay. And like, do you know, like, what were the statistics? Like, it's stage four with this. What are the chances uh, that you're going to be alive in, you know, two years?
1: Yeah. So, One of my one of my friends who actually ended up being my husband who was at my bedside asked that question. I was like, "Mm, you know, I didn't want numbers because I really didn't want to hear that. And I think to this day, I think, you know, a lot of patients that I see get frustrated when they hear numbers. And so I actually talk to patients. I say, you know, if you don't want to hear those numbers, just let your doctor know. You know, sometimes the doctors feel obligated to give you numbers. Mm -hmm. They don't have to give you those numbers. If the numbers are gonna help you, then great. But if the numbers are gonna frustrate you, then why even hear it? But this particular doctor said I would have three. Three months, three months to to live. But that was without treatment, you know. And so I, of course, was going to do the treatment. But the problem was, is this particular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has a very high chance of coming back very quickly. And when it comes back, they cannot cure it they cannot effectively treat it. They're kind of out of options, at least back then. I had my treatment before they had the rituximab, which is something that's really been groundbreaking for many Mm -hmm. non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients, but that wasn't an available treatment for me at the time. So I was kind of stuck with just a traditional chemotherapy that just didn't do a really good job at treating this cancer. So the mortality rate was actually quite high at the five-year mark following a diagnosis like this.
0: Mm -hmm. When you say quite high, what's that mean?
1: I, you know, I honestly don't remember if I'm remembering correctly, it was like 50 to 60%. Yeah. Survival rate. So pretty, yeah. well, pretty. Okay. Grim up.
0: So this happened, all this took place in 2000. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. 2000, okay. 2000. I had my bone marrow transplant in 2001.
0: Okay. Um, and you pulled through it and like two years later, you're, you're like, is this in the rear view window, uh, rear view mirror for you now?
1: Completely, so yeah. you know after I was done with treatment, I was cured i mean it it felt amazing for, for me to get that PET scan or you know it was gallium yeah. scans and it was eventually PET scans, negative, 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 everything was great, cured, so it was like miracles happened, this cancer is gone. I was vital, I felt great. I stayed in medical school, didn't miss a day
0: incredible and and, and and then, what happens in roughly June of two thousand and three
1: yeah. So my husband and I, that you know, the one who asked about how many, how long does she have? He felt so bad about the three months he got married to me, of course, right? So we we got married, and in- was he a physician? No, he was not. A no, physician.
0: okay, okay, okay.
1: So in two thousand three, I started not to feel good, and thought for sure the cancer was back because I was kind of nauseated, I was losing weight. So did some tests. Turns out I'm pregnant. So the doctor was wrong. So I was actually able wow. to get pregnant. after transplant. <laughs> And my husband's like, what? How is this possible? <laughs> I like, oh, I don't think he, he was planning on that. He was actually older than me. So I think he definitely was not planning on that. But it was amazing. We were just so blessed. Yeah. So I gave birth to my daughter in May of 2003.
0: What was her name? Sophia. Oh, my goodness gracious. That's my daughter's name. <laughs>
1: really- oh Yeah. I love yeah. It. I yeah. Love it. It beautiful was my name. grandmother's name too. So we named her after my grandmother. Uh, I just beautiful. love that name. Mm. It was such a miracle. And I remember the childbirth was extremely hard. And I thought, this is weird. I'm like in shape. Women don't really complain about <laughs> this as much. Women are my hero. They were my new yeah. superhero. No more smuckers jars, vitality. Here. These women that give babies, these are my <laughs> heroes, right? So difficult, the childbirth. So a few weeks go by after, after I delivered my daughter and I couldn't even hold her my mom was in town, she would have to bathe there for me, I could do nothing. Mm. So I was actually quite worried cancer was back. And you know, that kind of always hangs over your shoulder, like, could this cancer come back? So I went to the emergency room. And the doctor came in the room, and he, he was he looked, he looked more sick than I think I actually felt. And he told me that they needed to do additional testing, but that my lung was filled with fluid. And so it automatically think that it was going to be cancer again. So they continued to do additional testing. They did an ultrasound of the heart. And they told me that the heart was only pumping at 8%. Oh. And so I was diagnosed, I was in cardiogenic shock, I was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy thought from a few things, you know, this did develop right after I had childbirth. So there was a small possibility that maybe it was from postpartum cardiomyopathy. But the more likely thing was the fact that I had radiation right to my chest. Mm -hmm. And that heart was really wrapped around all my great vessels. So when I had radiation, they knew it was going to go to the chest. But again, they're treating stage four cancer. It's almost like uh, we just want to get this girl to live, you know, three years, maybe five years. I mean, that was kind of their goal. I, I don't know that you know, you don't worry about the late stream effects when you're trying to save a life. And so to look back, I would never have not had chemotherapy. I would never have not had that radiation because that really is what cured the lymphoma. Mm. But unfortunately, I was one of the few that did end up with this cardiomyopathy from the treatments that I received. And, you know, maybe the childbirth also continued to push that forward uh, a little bit more. It may have been a lot of strain on the heart. So close to that time when I had had um, the chemotherapy so i'm diagnosed with heart failure and the doctor came in the room and you know this is my biggest nightmare right because actually it was so interesting when i was diagnosed with cancer i thought oh thank god i don't have asthma i could not live with a chronic disease because <laughs> after the cancer treated, i could get back and you know once i had my first chemo i could start running it i felt great because i got my life back <laughs> now i'm being diagnosed with heart failure i'm like this is very bad this is this is very so very, what do you
0: so, so how do you how do you recover from cardiomyopathy what
1: Right. What so do do? the doctor at this particular hospital, because I didn't go to Mayo, I just went to a hospital very close to my house because I, I wasn't feeling good. You know, he had said, this heart's not going to last you more than a year. They had me in the hospital for about two weeks to try to stabilize me. And so I went to Mayo Clinic. And ironically, I was getting ready to start my clinicals at Mayo Clinic, like within a few weeks. So went to Mayo Clinic, saw the doctors there, and they just filled my heart with hope. Mm. They said, no, no. You may one day need a transplant, but we're going to start with medications. When the medications don't work, there will be various procedures we can consider. And that's exactly what we did. So that was 2003. So they started me on medications and cardiac rehab. So guess who was super excited about that? I was like, yes, I up! You know, so really loved cardiac rehab, got stronger. The medications helped the heart. So the heart function increased to about 16 to 18%, not great. It was still super mm-hmm. low but because i was fit and i took such good care of my body for so many years i felt pretty good i was able to go back to re- i was able to start my residency and it, it worked out for about 2 years but the demands of residency mm. became pretty challenging so in you know 2004 or 5 i guess it was about 2006 i took a i took a few years off and then in 2008 really probably the most significant hardship in my life happened. And I, my husband slept in and that was unlike him. Cause he too was a morning person like me. What, what,
0: what, yeah. And so when did you get married? What's his name? What was his name? Charles. Charles. Okay. Yeah. And so when did, when did you get married to Charles? Was it?
1: So that would have been around 2006.
0: Okay. 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 And then, okay. So we're now in 2008. What am I no,
1: I have to track back okay. my years. So that would have been around two, that before I made it or it was around 2002, 2000. Okay. Yeah. 2002. Okay.
0: okay. Okay. So Charles slept in and, uh, what happened?
1: So that was in 2008. And so slept in and, you know, you know, you automatically get that, like that feeling like this is just seems very unusual for him, but you know, I, I always try to like go towards that place of optimism, like being the eternal optimist, but I had this very bad feeling. And I remember the night before he told me, cause we had gone out to dinner as a family and he had told me, you know, go, go sleep with the baby, just be down with there with her tonight. And I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. I'll go down and be with her. Cause our bedrooms were kind of separated from, from Sophia. And she was still so young at the time. And so I went in to check them in the bedroom and, I just saw him, you know, face down and I called his name out and there was no response. And I, you know, I, I just knew, and it's like your existence just, you know, and I live at this like really high level of just like, Mm. you know, I love your mom, by the way. And I I think your mom's like, like, like I live, I live like up there and she's the same way. Like, I just love, like in, in a matter of, it was like a second, it's just like everything free fell. And it's so hard to describe that experience. And it's like, it's so flat. You're almost emotionless. Like you're so numb to everything. And, you know, I knew that I wouldn't be able to resuscitate him because time had gone by. It probably happened many hours earlier. But, you know, in retrospect, it's just one of those really um, terrible things. It just, it changed my life for a a good year or so. Um, I was not able to get back to that happy. I never got depressed, which was interesting, but I could never get happy, but I wasn't clinically depressed. I I have a very strong faith in God. I really relied on that, Um, but it was difficult. and I had to stay strong for Sophia.
0: Yeah. How, and so how old was Sophia?
1: So Mm. she was five at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So she was five and it was really difficult for her because she was different than her friends and, you know, death, it's so difficult. And in life you know as humans we really run away from death or pain you know any sort of grief experience and and i don't know you know i think running away from it sometimes makes it worse you sometimes have to just go head on into it and when you go head on into it and face it is when you really start to be able to process these things in a way that you can cultivate renewal and acceptance and that's what it takes but for me it was really my faith in god that brought me through because there had to be a deeper meaning to death and where your loved one goes and so those fundamental belief systems that i had from a very young child with you know being raised christian or whatever your belief system is but i was roman catholic and that really helped me through this very 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 difficult time um and so i got better you know The hardest thing was my heart because this was when I was still off of work. And what was really crazy during this time is I was actually listed for heart transplant during this time. And I've actually never told this part of the story. But in 2007, about a year before my husband was had passed away, I was listed for transplant because I was not doing well. And so this happens, and you're just like, "Oh my gosh, what what do you do?" You know, and we never really talked about this. I mean, I was the one that was sick. He wasn't sick. You know, we didn't think he would necessarily die, but I was the one that was supposed to die, not him. And so it was like this whole role reversal and just trying to to get through it. And I did. You know, I have such a loving, supportive family. They were so there for me. Mm-hmm. I did things very different than what they tell you to do. I mean, I did a lot of things within that first year. I moved out of our house. I went to go just kind of rent a house on the ocean just to get away from what I had found. I couldn't be near that bedroom and I bought a dog and then I eventually bought a different house. And so I did all these major changes, but that helped me. Yeah. That helped me like re-identify Dawn and what the new normal was going to be. And then after about a year, I started dating again and I was judged, but that helped yeah, too. Yeah.
0: yeah. Can, before, before you, before you go on, can I, I just want to ask you a couple of questions. So your husband, um, how old was he when he, he was older disease. than
1: me yeah so right. he was 54.
0: okay and, and he did heart you know did heart disease uh run in his family it did. it did heart
1: disease did run in his family and he had had many years prior to meeting me that he did not take as good of care of himself and then when he met me of course you know that was part of the attraction is the fact that you know he had already changed his life and he was taking good care of himself he was a brilliant man just with such wisdom and love for life and love for humanity and just a really deep rich person in terms of his belief systems and, and faith in God himself. And so it was really a beautiful relationship we shared. And, you know, we had never thought I'd be able to have a child. Yeah. And so that also worked that he was a little bit older because it was really difficult when, after I went through cancer and I was dating young men, I was kind of like, Oh, I don't know. Like I, I can't really have kids. And I had this totally like very, very, Different view on life, and so when I would date twenty six year old men, I just didn't really yeah. get why they wanted to go out and do these you know things that I just didn't want to do. Drink and all these, I just really wanted to talk about life, you know. <laughs> these like higher, higher important topics. And Charles loved doing that with me, so we had a beautiful relationship. And that's what uh, I learned from this is that time on earth you have to cherish.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you rebounded. You got the house by the water, the dog, you're, you're there for Sophia, and now you go out and you start dating again.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting because around that time when they had listed me for transplant, they put this device in my chest. And around 2009, I started feeling better, like a lot better. You know, mm-hmm. it was almost a miracle. And so that is when, you know, I started dating, I started having happiness again. And so it's like everything started working. And in fact, I started feeling better than I had ever with heart failure. I even tried to start jogging again a little bit, which I really couldn't do too much of that. But life was back. You know, I met an amazing man who is actually my husband now, Brandon. So I did get remarried Uh huh. and older that- again
0: or younger, same age. <laughs>
1: No, he's just a few years older than me. So okay, that, okay. yeah, he's just a few years <laughs> older than me, um, but I was old. I, I was older at this time. So everyone around my age then had wis- more wisdom than a 26 year old. Right. Yeah, um, so yeah. that was a really important lesson for me is, you know, I had at that time, despite going through cancer, you would think I wouldn't worry about what people thought about me, but I did. And a lot of people judged and they thought, how could she get married so quick? Maybe, you know, and they, especially since he was, and that couldn't have been farther from the truth for me. I was so in love with my husband, Charles, when he died. I wanted love immediately the next day. Like, I wanted it in my life again. And it was really hard dating because I went from love and I wanted to go to love. So dating other men that were divorced before, and so, it just didn't work because they kind of had this like hate for their ex. Oh, well, I, I,
0: how did you end up um, meeting and uh, falling in love with Brandon?
1: So a friend introduced me. Uh And he was at a restaurant. She happened to know him. It was kind of this weird how we met sort of a thing, but it was kind of meant to be. He had never been married, had an Uh amazing, has an amazing family, and so I was just really blessed. And and did you know?
0: Did you know that first night in that restaurant? Did you sense it or no?
1: There was a really strong attraction on many levels, and so I, I wasn't sure. You know, it just. I, I stayed really in the present. So I didn't, I didn't think too far in the future, but it felt okay. right. It felt yeah. safe and it hadn't felt that way before. And he had really good virtues. And that was important to me, especially having a daughter. And he respected that. He respected the fact that I wouldn't be able to do a lot of the things that many women he would date would do. Right. I mean, you know, I wanted to be proper and do the right things around my daughter and make sure that she was, you know, comfortable with things. And, and so Yeah, we didn't date that long. We dated for probably a little less than a year. And we eventually got married because it was hard to date having a young child who was, you know, I guess she was seven at the time. And and then we had this beautiful family unit and everything was wonderful um, until about 2015. And then then I was with Sophia. I was in Cleveland. I was doing a presentation at Cleveland Clinic. And I happened to bring her with me. She sat in the back of the room. And I was driving home, and you know how there's some certain parts of town that are maybe not even totally, you know, a little more difficult to drive through. And I passed, I passed out. I, I was losing consciousness. And I had been oh. having these dizzy spells. And I just kept and you know, I told my doctor, I feel weird. It's just something's not quite right. The ejection fraction started creeping down a little bit again. So I went to Cleveland Clinic. I was really fortunate actually to be there, uh, you know, to be with good doctors when I wasn't near my own. And what they had found is that device they put in my chest was causing an occlusion in my neck. So blood flow wasn't draining from my brain properly. And anytime I would drive with my arms up, it would oh. cause some complications in that area. So in 2015, there started to become more and more resistance. You know, all those interventions over the years they had done to kind of give me some quality of life were starting to kind of wear out their welcome at that point in my body. And so fast forward to 2016, that was kind of really when symptoms plummeted at that point. Um, I was super excited. This again, you know, we kind of started off with some of the story how I went from hospital medicine to the outpatient side to work in the cancer center. And around that time, my symptoms were starting to get worse. So it was like divine intervention, you know, as it would, as it would be, because I really couldn't keep up the hospital practice, um, that pace of that practice and the call schedule at night and weekends and holidays. So I was invited to go to that outpatient cancer center to start that integrative program in the right time. And so then in 2016, it was September, 22nd, 2016, I was supposed to present to the executive team about the success of that integrative program so I could get expansion throughout the institution. Yeah. And I finished my morning patients and I love, I, I mean, I just, ch- I adore my patients. I love each and every one. Of them. I could just kiss them. I love them. <laughs> I love them. And so, you know, I finished, but I'm always late because I could, I just could be with them for all day. You know, I always go over, I'm always running late. They're always okay with it though. So I get to the stairs to go downstairs and my knees were like quivering. Like I remember I was like, what on earth is going on? And I'm like, I'm not nervous. I I love talking. Like you can see it's not So I get to the bottom of the stairs. I'm like, oh my gosh, my legs feel so weak. And I got to the bottom of the stairs and I just felt totally off. So I got to the boardroom and I just paused. I remember kind of just shutting my eyes and just like giving gratitude, just doing a deep breath, like being so grateful for being able to have this opportunity. So they invite me in. And there's, you know, everyone's in suits, dark suits, everyone's serious. And usually I would like say something really lighthearted, kind of break the mood. But I was like, not today. I am going to stay focused because I do not feel too hot. So I sit down and you know, when you're holding the mouse and you're trying to control it with the cursor, I coordinate it. And then as time goes by, the mouse goes further and further and further away. And I look down at the keyboard and as I'm looking down at the keyboard, everyone gets fuzzy. And then that's the last thing I remember. And then the next moments were the most, uh, it was the most amazing experience a human being can ever have. There was just this complete silence, peace. It was cool feeling in terms of the temperature. And I remember there being almost like a slight breeze. And the breeze, you know, I, I, I remember almost just like, feeling the hair like sticking on my cheek. So it was like there was still this like subtle level of awareness, but it was a place of like complete innocence and acceptance of what was the total unknowing. But I was in no hurry to get out of where I was at. There was also no bright light, which a lot of people say was a bright light, but there was no bright light. But it just felt like I was being suspended. Like I felt like I was being held. And I've described this before. It was like God was holding me. Like I had so much warmth and comfort. And then the next thing you know, there's like this immense level of like energy that just like goes through my body. And I've described it like a tsunami, like just this like you know dawn's energy is coming back her life force is coming back when it comes back it's a lot so here it comes so this energy like goes through my body like pops me up on my bottom like i literally pop up and you know it was preceded by this huge thump which was my defibrillator and so basically though my defibrillator was going shock after shock after shock after shock and it wasn't shocking me back to life because is that is
0: that you didn't have a shockable rhythm
1: Exactly right. It was completely, it was essentially a flat line. It was very fine V So it was ventricular fibrillation. And it was essentially just like this. So the, the defibrillator just couldn't shock it. My electrophysiologist was at Mayo Clinic Rochester. And when he reviewed the rhythm, he said it, it basically just like give chills up his spine. He's like, he doesn't even know if he believes that the defibrillator really pulled me out of the rhythm. He thinks I really just came back to life. I mean, we, we'll never know. Doesn't matter. But guess what? Don's awake. And you know what the first thing out of my mouth was? I can finish presenting. <laughs> <I don't have laughs>
0: They're so like, "No, better. let's let's pass on that, Don."
1: <laughs> That's exactly what they said. They're like, "Uh, uh-uh. I had no idea what just happened." I mean, I was just like, "I don't," and I didn't know I was really down that long. I actually, not too long ago, looked back at the medical notes because I'm like, everyone keeps asking me how long I was down. I don't know. Was it just a few seconds? But no, it actually said four minutes. Wow. Oh, I know. I was like, I don't know, but it was crazy. What was really terrible. So, though is-
0: so, so 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 wait, you're in that room. You flat you flatline. You're down for roughly four minutes. Were there f- other physicians there? That's what I was just and gonna say. I mean, did that? They, they not, did they not try and like basically, you know, give you CPR?
1: No one knew my story, and so you know, here's Dawn. Like everyone sees her as like this picture of health, right? You know, a few people, some people knew my story, but. People didn't see me as sick. You know, I really, you know, that's a pro- hard thing with heart failure is you don't really look sick. And that's the most invalidating thing. People are like, oh, you don't look sick. I'm like, but I feel terrible, you know. You And I never really would tell many people that, but boy. Heart failure was just awful. It was like I was shackled with it. You know, I couldn't do anything. I was so limited. And mm. so I basically would invest all my energy into my time with my patients and my work because it gave me back so much meaning. And, you know, the things I do with my daughter, I would give her all the energy. But at the end of the day, I was Miss Dawn was really like totally depleted. Um, but no one did CPR. I had one colleague of mine, actually, that I guess just wasn't aware of my sheets, thought I was having a seizure, which maybe I was because I didn't have any blood flow going to my brain so i guess that could have been a possibility but no one thought about it and then a few other other colleagues like did you just not eat breakfast i'm like no clue they they still at that point had no real clue what happened until someone had said uh yeah here's her rhythm strip because they were able to pull it right away and everyone was like oh gosh
0: are you supposed to wear a bracelet when you have that (laughs) just like a diabetic does
1: yeah, I was told. Actually, you are, but I did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, that okay. probably would have been really smart, actually. Uh, yeah, I did. Actually did. <laughs> after that, I had a few people, I, someone even bought me one. I, I didn't wear it. Um, yeah. So after that 2016 issue, there was more procedures, more, it was just this back and forth. In fact, they even did another device because they were really worried since that one didn't shock me. And I was at more of a risk of this happening again. They switched out that device. They tried to pull out those old leads. They couldn't. So they left them in. So they actually added another lead to that occlusion, which caused more symptoms. So, you know, in 2019, I was driving with my daughter and I passed out again. And that was it. So I had to stop driving in 2019. And that's ultimately when they listed me for transplant. So it was in 2019, December.
0: So they listed you for transplants. For, so you need a heart transplant. And um, do you know, are you high on the list, low on the list? Yeah. Uh, and what, I mean, yeah, and typically, so yeah, yeah. And typically, um, my understanding is that there's lots of people that are in need of heart transplants and that you have to yeah. have what the, the right math. A lot of things have to come together to make that yeah. happen. Is that right?
1: that's exactly right rip you know when you're listed for transplant or even before you're listed for transplant they do this expansive panel of tests and for me it was like a whole week long because with the history of cancer and all these other things they had to do even more tests to make sure there's no cancer so you get so exhausted from that evaluation and there's over 106,000 people on the transplant list today as we talk and about almost 20 people die a day waiting and what's really difficult is you know not we all believe in organ donation right 95 percent of americans believe in organ donation they think it's a good thing but only 58 percent actually check that box to be an organ donor and you know what's ironic you know what i did this morning at eight o'clock i actually had the, the the privilege of going and talking to high school students that were in their driver's ed classes to talk oh. about organ donation it was so cool and they were so interested it was the neatest thing. And so the organ donation, um, life source, they did a PowerPoint presentation. And these young men and women, they were so interested. And they paid such sincere attention to my story. And it was such a lovely exchange. So it's really neat to see what this whole journey brings to, to life. Mm. And, you know, I think that's why I'm so open with my story is because if this can help to encourage others to be organ donors and, and we'll keep on talking about this, yeah. But you know, when someone dies, why would you bury your organs? Like if you're gonna die anyways, if you're brain dead and you have no quality of life and they're going to remove you from life support and you're going to die, why would you not give your organs? One person who dies has the potential to save eight lives, mm. eight organs. And then well beyond that, we use tissue for other various things. So up to 75 lives can be you know, helped with those various tissues for other, other procedures, but Uh,
0: I don't think think that's, I don't think that, like, I didn't know all that. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people that don't realize how, if you, if you check that box to be an organ donor, how many potential lives you can help and potentially save.
1: And it doesn't matter how old you were. Mm -hmm. you know, because there's older people. There was a gentleman, I believe he was in his 100s that donated his corneas to help someone see. Mm -hmm. And then there was another person who was in his 90s who was able to donate part of his liver to another person after he died. And so it's just really incredible the stories that you hear. And so when I was listed for transplant in 2019, you know, it's so hopeful. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like, I'm going to finally get my life back. But I'll tell you, what was really challenging was the years leading up to that. Like, you know, 18 years I lived with heart failure. And I was a young person. You know, so that you think of heart failure, you think of an older person maybe that didn't take care of their body and maybe smoked and didn't. Those people still deserve their lives to be, you know, you know given back by organ donation if they need it, but it's hard to realize that there's congenital heart disease. There's some babies, think about all the babies that die that need heart transplants because of being born with heart defects. And then you have young adults that end up with some of those congenital issues that need a second transplant. And then you have individuals like myself that end up with some of these issues or infiltrative diseases. So there's a lot of young folks that end up needing heart transplant. You just would never think it. There are people that you may see at the store that look totally normal, but inside it's really difficult. I remember my doctor asked me towards the end, you know, you probably should get a handicap sticker because that way you could spend your energy doing things you enjoy rather than walking. And I was like, I'm not going to do it. I never got one. So, and to this day when I see him, I'm like, yeah, I'm so happy I never did that. I'm so happy I always made myself exercise. And I'll tell you, I, I the value of taking care of your life, of your body, eating, health, eating good your whole life and exercising no one ever would have known I was sick. And in fact, I worked all the way up until the day of transplant. I was, oh, working my. you had asked me this. So I was doing all video stuff and I was in the hospital. So I guess I should back up. So in 2019, they listed me, listed me for transplant. I got no call for 13 months.
0: Did you, how frustrating was that?
1: It, it wasn't frustrating. It was just really scary. Mm. Um, I had actually gotten COVID during part of that time. And so I was like, oh, you know, my whole family's like, she's going to die. Because, you know, that was Delta. That's before we had any vaccines, any treatment. This is like yeah. first wave. And I got COVID. My daughter got it. You know, life happens. But guess who didn't have to go to the hospital? And if you really look at that research, you know, we see that folks who are on whole food plant-based diets typically just yeah. don't succumb to COVID. They seem to just do better. And, and I, you know, I I really did believe that, but I did okay during COVID. Mayo Clinic has this awesome telehealth programs. They're able to keep me at home and monitor me with a nurse multiple times a day at home. So they didn't have to bring me in the hospital. But that's what really pushed me down. So that was December of 2020. And then come January of 2021, I just was no longer safe to be at home anymore. And they did further testing to show that My heart just wasn't getting adequate blood flow and oxygen to the vital organs. And so at that point, they admitted me to the hospital for supportive therapies. So I wasn't a candidate for the heart pump. I wasn't a candidate for one of the balloon pumps because of the prior radiation and because I'm small in body size. So the only thing they could use to support my life was IV medications to help my heart pump. Mm. And if I continued to get more sick, they were going to have to put me on basically life support, like something called ECMO, which, you know, we've heard a lot of COVID patients go on, but um, yeah, I remember in the hospital, I'm getting those IV medications and I was doing a webinar. This is an international webinar. No one, would no. know. So I'm talking, I'm presenting about breast cancer and eating healthy. I'm talking about nutrition. So I love this stuff, right? And my heart goes, like, it starts like going into a very dangerous arrhythmia and all the nurses come in the room. I'm like, it's going to be really embarrassing in a minute. I'm like, we're going to go to questions. So I, put the camera off. I'm like, Oh, this is not good timing. I'm like, I told you guys not to run this medicine when I was doing this presentation. So it was the next day,
0: February 5th.
1: It was, yep. February. My doctor comes in the room and he's like, Don, we have a heart.
0: And, and, and do you know where that heart came from? I don't. Okay. Okay.
1: I don't know much about it. It's really interesting, though. When the doctor tells you that after waiting all these years, you know, you figure I was actually listed temporarily in 2007 to about 2009, getting off the list because of the circumstances, I ended up getting a little bit better and then getting listed again when I was actually extremely sick in 2019, waiting all that time. You would think after all those years, I'd be like, I'm ready. You're not. I mean, my heart dropped. You automatically have such Mm. sadness for this family that's going through this and that someone has to die so that you can live. So it's a very difficult emotion to process. But yet you're so hopeful and so happy that you're going to be there for your family again. Like I'm going to be able to have energy and do stuff with my family. I've held them back for all these years. You know, we could hardly ever do anything because of me. I'm the one holding my poor family back. And so the next thing out of what he shared with me, is like, but, and I was like, Oh, this isn't good. She is an IV drug user. And she has hepatitis C. And so that was like, oh, God, how is this possible? <laughs> this isn't good. Because, you know, I have really, it's interesting because you asked me one question earlier. I don't always, I didn't really read a lot about heart failure. Or you asked me about the lymphoma statistics. I never read yeah. about what I had because I didn't want to know. I don't want to know numbers. And so I kept myself away from those things. And I trusted my doctors. You know, I hired doctors who I trusted that mm-hmm. I could say, you're going to cure me of what's going on so I could do what matters to me. I, you're hired. <laughs> you know, you're my caretaker. You're gonna fix me, and so that worked for me. And I and I love that when I see that in patients too, that they can be informed. I was informed and I listened, but yet I didn't want to get so into the details. That I was trying to be my own doctor. But with the hepatitis C, I actually did research that, and you know some of the data suggests you know the things you can die from after a heart transplant are, you know, if you get rejection, of course, and if you get infection, but you also get vasculopathy or like an arterial disease. Of the arteries of that transplanted heart and there that was one of my concerns is can that hep c cause inflammation in the body that can then cause this mm. complication in my heart in the future which i'm back on track to live to be at least 100 and now that i have a young heart maybe i'll be 128 is my hope but in all seriousness this was a really hard thing for me to process and get I'm on just- that smucker's
0: jar <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm gonna do it i promise I want to. so it was Difficult though, but it was really amazing. So a few hours went by. You know, I just had to think about it. He he wanted me to think about it because he had known that I had said no to this when they had originally listed me. So a few hours went by, and I just had this complete knowing that that this heart is for me. And it was I was probably like eighty percent in agreement with my decision. Like you know, deep down I still had some doubts. So. You know, the next day is when they took me to the operating room because it takes time to bring that organ to Mayo Clinic and set all that stuff up because the person's on life support and then they do the process and the Mayo Clinic doctors go and they get that heart. They bring it to Mayo Clinic and then you're ready. And so they take you down to the operating room while they're doing that process of getting that organ. Mm. It's really amazing the timing of it all. I had no idea how this all works. And so they're taking me down to the operating room, prepping me, and they're on the phone the whole time with the procurement team who's getting the heart from the donor who was actually many States away Um, because I was listed as a status two, because I had gotten relatively sick. Um, they were able to go more states over. So my heart was actually coming from a further distance away. I don't know for sure. I mm-hmm. kind of—I always joke, like in the operating room, there was this nurse that had this post-it on her thing and it said Kentucky. So I don't know, maybe Kentucky was her password, but I'm like, maybe my organ came from Kentucky. I'm not sure, but maybe one day I'll find out. I hope I find out. So I just remember going down into the operating room and seeing my surgeon, Dr. Sarayapaglou. And I had eye contact with him and I had no fear. None. Like every other surgery I've ever had in my life, I I was scared. Like I think anyone's scared before you go under anesthesia. I had none. I had total knowing that this was for me. This is the right thing. I am ready. And as I went under anesthesia, I just prayed for my donor. I thanked my donor. I prayed for her family and that they were okay and comforted in this time. And that was it. Went under oh, anesthesia. There were some complications. I actually had to go back to the operating room because of the prior radiation. I had, had some bleeding, so they had to reopen me up again. Mm-hmm. I woke up a few days after transplant, and that—that that is my most incredible experience in life—is when I woke up.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That was as incredible as when you like mm-hmm. almost saw the white light and you felt like God was holding you and all that.
1: Mm-hmm. This is right up this, there. This okay. is better. I think. Okay.
0: Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt.
1: Yeah, no, I'm happy you did that because you're right. Cause that was pretty cool. But I think that prepared me for this. That prepared me, you know, that taught me to just embrace every moment, like in, in its ultimate essence. Like that's mm. just what I would say. And so I woke up and my whole body was just like, beating against the bed. Mm. And I had never felt this before. I was like, oh my gosh, like what is going on? Like everything's beating. And I heard this like whistling sound and it was my hair that was like, like just brushing ever so subtly. Like, I don't know if anyone else would ever have heard anything. I mean, it probably happens to anyone with a little bit of long hair, but they probably aren't aware of it. But I just had such full awareness of everything. Mm. This is the gift of everything I've been through. And it was like singing, and it was just like this harmonious sound. And my whole body was warm for the first time in so many years that it was just like this immense sense of being fully alive. I describe Mm. it as like my cells were oscillating at this higher frequency. And I think this is very cool. And there's something with this that has to do with whole food, plant-based nutrition, I think too, which this may sound a little weird to people, but it, it was the coolest thing ever. Like, just I was alive and more alive than anyone has ever experienced. And I haven't lost that.
0: Wow. <laughs> so, yes. what, so cool. what, 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 well, what it is, it is so cool. And it sounds like you started having issues with your heart like back in what, 2000 and uh, 2000 three is when you first had that cardio, cardio cardiomyopathy, right? Yeah. And so for almost 18 years, you've you just kind of weren't able to live at that higher frequency that you probably were so like used to, and now all of a sudden because of this gift, the ultimate gift, right? Yeah. I mean, a new heart, you're now able to oscillate at this frequency that you haven't experienced in 18 years. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That was Incredible. exactly
1: it. I mean, so it was just amazing, you know? And so I remember before I went.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're recharged. You're. like,
1: Don't go in that room. She will not let you out. She's going to be talking and she is like energized. <laughs> I'm so energized, <laughs> but you know, it wasn't, e- it wasn't that easy. I was just like, so in love with the fact that I was alive and I was going to get on that smucker's jar, but you know, in all seriousness, <laughs> When I tried to take those first steps, I had asked them who was the first to ever walk once they were extubated. So I wanted to try to hit that. You know, I just tried, I think they tried to make me feel good. I was probably like the last person to walk because I had had a few of those complications. But that first step was so challenging. Mm. I was so weak. I was so deconditioned. So despite feeling so fully alive, when I tried to take that full first step with a walker, I mean, like not even like a, a true walker. It's like a walker where all your body weight is on it. I I, I could barely do it. You know, I mean, I well, took
0: but didn't course, you say didn't you say that you you were out for like days a couple of days is that
1: right It was a few days before I was extubated yeah
0: I mean, That was hard
1: how... that part was that actually was really really difficult that whole I don't remember being intubated I don't mm-hmm. I remember part of being extubated where you know they're talking to you and that part was actually scary to me what was going to happen cuz you know I re- remember you know as a is working with patients who were kind of in those situations and uh, yeah, that was that was very challenging. Um...
0: You know, um, if if I can say so, in doing my research mm-hmm. for this, Don, you, before before we move on too much too much farther, I just want to say I came across something that you said, and I want to read it for everybody. And you say that the true essence of our existence should be less about what we want and more about what we give and how there's no greater gift than organ donation. And um, it's just, it's, it is so incredible to see you so alive, so vibrant, so happy that um, you're just, you just light me on fire. (laughs) It's incredible.
1: Oh, thank you. I just feel so blessed. And it's absolutely true. You know, organ donation is just like it shifts that permanence of death into this vital existence and purpose. Like, you know, and so it was, it was so interesting. So you're on so many medications post-transplant and you're on a lot of prednisone. And I was a little upset four days after transplant. Like, I started thinking why it was, it was very weird. It was very unlike me, but I was In my mind, it was late at night. I couldn't fall asleep, and I was thinking, why did I get this hepatitis C heart? Like, and why is she an IV drug user? And Man, if this is going to mess up this heart, you know, it's weird thinking, right? So I went to bed, and I had this dream. I had this powerful dream, and I woke up, and I was, like, in this dwelling place. It was this concrete square room, there was a window, and I remember running to that window to look out to see if my car was there. There was no car. I remember looking behind me to see if I had my purse there. There was no purse. The only thing I saw was a door, and I remember in the dream crawling out of the door, and outside of the door was this really tall grass. And as I'm crawling through the grass, like the blades of grass were like sticking to my leg, like you know, grass has like that little stickiness to oh, it, yeah. almost oh. where it cuts your leg. I feel like when I discuss when I describe this, like I can feel how that dream was. It was it was really amazing. And I remember in the dream flipping over, and there's these clouds, like these big cumulus clouds in the sky. And then in the distance, there were these people, these families and kids playing like in harmony and like blissful existence. It was beautiful. Mm. And then there was this me- like this message, like this word that came over me that said grace. And I thought, okay. So I woke up and I was really comforted. I was like okay, I'm going to name my heart grace. And I happened to look at my phone because I would always sleep to very relaxing music. And the song that was playing on my phone at that moment, and I screenshotted it was grace, Mm. but it gets better. So I opened my email because I wasn't sleeping and I, you know, I'd like to work (laughs) and the email waiting for me says full of grace. (sighs) So it was powerful. So At that moment, I had complete knowing that this is the right heart for me. I named her Grace, as you would imagine. And from that moment forward, I have had just full embrace of the heart I received. And in fact, it's so meaningful to me that I actually got her heart because I don't know what her circumstances were. And all I know is that her and I live in such harmony together. We have so much fun together that if this can be an example for someone who is even on the brink of questioning being an organ donor, I am here to say, The person that gets your or your loved one's organs, God forbid, anything ever had to happen and it did like this. I am just one person out of all those other organ donation recipients that are the same exact way. They Mm -hmm. are the same way. You know, that gift is something that just transforms everyone's life. I think I lived like this before, but this has raised me to a different level of existence and purpose and meaning. You know, I get up at 3.54 in the morning and I am ready to go because I have so much to do and so much to give back for what I receive, That truly is that ultimate gift of life. So do you feel like,
0: do you feel like you, do you feel like you are at all a different Dawn or do you feel like you're just more of more of Dawn?
1: I feel both. I am different in a way that I feel that I am. um, I'm more connected to people and humanity. You know, I've always loved people but I love people with about zero judgment at this point. Like I don't pass judgment, you know, that's what this taught me, you know, because going into this transplant and getting that organ, you know, I was still having a little judgment, even post-op day four, I was having some judgment until I had that dream. And, you know, when you look at like the divine meaning of grace, it's really, you know, a gift from God, it's a virtue. And I feel that I received this gift so that I can help to radically change certain things, you know, in life. And there's no better time now. And, you know, part of this is, you know, what you are so passionate about with whole food, plant-based nutrition and just living healthy and exercise and, and sleep and social connections and deep meaning and purpose. And and I love everything that you and your family stands for. And and, and I'm the same way, you know, there's just so much that we can give back to others. And I love yeah. that.
0: How How have Brandon and Sophia embraced you, you know, post- um, heart transplant surgery.
1: Yeah, it was so amazing. So, you know, because I had the transplant and the timing I did, I was able to be at her high school graduation, which was awesome. I was able to help her move into college because she just started her fresh last year was her first year of college. So I was able to do that. I was able to go to some football games, which is so fun. Like You know, these like young college kids, I'm like, Oh, I just love this. And they're so full of energy and stuff.
0: Nothing like it.
1: Yeah. Oh, So it's just been amazing. And we're so excited because this summer we get to really go on a, our first family vacation because last year we really couldn't go on a vacation because I was still so close to the transplant period. We really couldn't travel. But, you know, it was interesting last year. My doctors did let me travel to Arizona. They felt that that was okay since there was a Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And you know what? On my four-month transplant anniversary, I climbed Camelback Mountain.
0: Oh. I did
1: Amazing. So that was one of, okay. So when I woke up, that was powerful, right? That beating of the heart. Well, guess what happened? So I, that connection that happened when I woke up from transplant happened again, when I was ascending Camelback mountain, my heart was just beating mm. so forcibly. And I just felt such a direct connection with my donor at that time. And the beauty of like the mountain Vista and the sunrise, it was just a very much like a spiritual connection. And, and an opportunity. That was just really amazing. It meant a lot to me because it was something I had done for so many years of my life that I hadn't been able to do for 18 years. I actually didn't set out to climb Camelback Mountain, but I had been actually exercising really hard after transplant. Um, and I was running and I had run a few 5Ks prior to that time. So I was like, maybe I could do half of it. But once I got to the halfway mark, my husband was behind me, by the way. He's like, slow down. You need to be safe. I'm like, I think you need to be safe. I'm like, I'm, going. I'm fine.
0: Now, so that was, did you say that was four months after surgery?
1: Yeah. So that, that was in June of last year.
0: Wow. And so, and then what did you do? I read about you doing something else <laughs> yeah. less, less than a year after your surgery that no other transplant that, that I'm aware of has ever done. And what was that?
1: Yeah. So I, I ran a marathon and I I wanted so bad to do it because, you know, you know, it was like transplant for me was like my second wind, you know, and a marathon teaches you a lot about life. Right. And so I was so committed and I really felt it was going to be possible. I trained very, very smart. I really feel the fundamental reason I was able to run the transplant is I do think my grittiness helped, but it was the plant-based nutrition that let me do it because there are so many medications you take. In fact, there was one point post-transplant that I was taking at least 45 different pills a day. Oh, wow like it's crazy. And the side effects from the transplant medications are immense. And so, you know, going through my transplant rehabilitation, it was kind of like when I went through cancer, everyone around you was sick, except for you. It was kind of, again, that same exact thing. I just had this, a, you know, just felt great. How could I run a marathon? The only difference really was the fact that I was eating this whole food plant-based nutrition and very few transplant patients do. If any, I, mean, I haven't really met any that that committed. And so I was very specific more than I had ever been about my diet and very particular about how mm-hmm. I balanced everything. And that's what got me to that point. And Jeff Galloway also helped me with my training. So I did do a little bit of a run walk. So I was very mm-hmm. smart with my heart. You know, a lot of people don't realize after you have a transplanted heart, they cut the nerves to the heart. So there's nothing that could speed up the heart or slow down the heart. It's mm-hmm. you that has to do it, especially early on. So it's very hard to run after a transplant. So when you run, your muscles tell you know your heart you need to speed up you know your body gets that signal through the nervous system but when they cut the nerves when they put the new heart in yeah you don't have that signal so you rely on your circulating catecholamines well, that's probably my gift cuz i have no problem generating energy and so early on after so the, transplant do those
0: nerves grow back though
1: there is, they suspect they do, but they suspect right. that that's usually a delayed response. But I'll tell you, this is my yeah. theory. And this is why, you know, they're, they're going to do some further testing, but I was able to run. I started running about six weeks after transplant. I started very early after transplant running and I was running five K's by three months after transplant, which was also very early. And so I think my, my desire and my support of my medical team to start this very early is potentially what allowed me to have this um, reinnervation of my sympathetic nervous system that's allowing me to engage my heart in a way that really matters, and it helps me in terms of my running, versus I'm just using my catecholamines. But I, I don't know if I'm that good at it. But it, it, yeah, so I've been I've been it, really lucky. So I it, think that the early on exercise that I was really dedicated to it has immensely helped me with the training for the marathon. Wow.
0: Now you also did you also compete in the World Transplant Games?
1: I did. So that was, and, 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 last- and, what is
0: that, and what does that mean? Like, do you have to have a, a transplant of heart or any part of your body? <laughs> do you know how that works?
1: Yeah. So it's really such a beautiful supportive event. So any person who has undergone organ donation or bone marrow transplant is eligible for the world transplant games or transplant games, America. Actually we have that as well. It's coming up actually in July um, in San Diego. And they even have different categories for family members to run or even living donors to be a part of it. Or there's many, many events as part of this. So last year, because of COVID, it had to be virtual. And so I wanted to start running so I could do the virtual event, which was three and a half months after transplant. So that was my motivation yeah. to start running at six weeks was so I could do this. And initially, the World Transplant Game said, sorry, you have to be, I think it's like, nine months out or a year out. And so they originally said I couldn't do it, but then I submitted my numbers. And so they let me do it, but I actually did decent.
0: (laughs) And and, and so what was that like meeting all those, uh, all those transplant, you know, athletes, was it just incredible?
1: It was a shame is it had to be virtual last year.
0: Oh, 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 okay. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, you could meet people virtually, but it had to be virtual. So, Next year it's going to be in Australia. So I'm very excited for that. you going to go? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, so actually I hope to go. I think, I, I think I'm going to go, but right now I still, I love the marathon running and you know, it's a little bit of diff- different training. And so I would love to do the Abbott major. So I would love to do all six of the major marathons is my goal. So this fall I'm doing Chicago and then in the spring, I always like to do the Donna Marathon for my patients. That's the breast cancer marathon that's in February, but I really have my sights set on doing London in the fall, and I'll just keep on going. So every Fall and every spring I'll keep on running a different one until I get all six of those major ones. and then I hope I can qualify I would like to qualify for Boston, but I'm not very fast yet so that's frustrating me. I've got to figure out how I can get my speedy legs back.
0: Yeah but you know I'm what I, listen the fact that you're back running is just <laughs> let let's let's ca- call that a huge victory right there, let alone running marathons incredible. Um, so what would you say to people that are listening that that have cancer or have had a brush across the bow with cancer? Um, any, any recommendation or advice for them?
1: Yeah. You know, I would say that I have a lot of times people ask me, you know, like, exactly what you're asking. You know, I kind of look at it as like, what, what creates that grittiness? You know, I love that word. Mm-hmm. And I would say the first thing was never letting go of that goal-directed mission of wanting to deliver, you know, original medicine through the lens of love for humanity being a doctor and helping people and you know at that basic biological level we want to be connected and care for others and you know as part of that it's just life is about something so much bigger than us and in society nowadays you know there's a lot of need for people want pleasure they want immediate gratification and that's not always what life is about you know it needs to be more about meaning and purpose and the fact that it's not just always about us so that would be the first part of it the next part of it, I would say, is I really controlled my thoughts. You know, I flipped the script both times with cancer and chemo and with transplant. And I allowed both of those to teach me and guide me. And I really tried to keep acceptance at the core of that and never run or or, or, or never run from it, right? Yeah. And there's that one story, I know I've shared it before, and it, it, it's with cows and buffaloes. It sounds kind of crazy. I don't know if you've ever heard this story. Have you no, heard
0: this? I don't think oh, I have.
1: Oh, then I'm happy I'm bringing it up. So this is great. So when there's a storm coming, cows run from it, keeping them in the storm longer. But a buffalo runs directly into the storm, ultimately shortening their time. Ah. So I love it's just simple, you know. But it makes sense, and so that's kind of you know go after it. You're not you're not going to shorten it. So, you know, I just feel that that is part of why I've attained this life filled with bliss, and and you know just really true heightened existence despite adversity. And that's what I work with my patients in, and I see them doing the same thing, you know, and it's just that invitation to use that and flip that script. But I I would say the biggest part of this is gratitude. And it sounds crazy, but I am so grateful for what I went through. And I'm, I'm so grateful for the loving support I had from my family, from my friends, from my colleagues from Mayo Clinic during all this time. I'm so grateful that I have this strong, like spiritual belief in God. And, you know, when we have gratitude, it really takes us from this place of deficit or, or nothing to this place of abundance. And that is, those are really, I think the things that helped get me through this.
0: Incredible. Um, So I want to go full, full swing here. So we started this, conversation and what an incredible conversation it's been with you waking up at 3 54 because you were so excited (laughs) right now how many breakfasts did you have this morning
1: i had well they were like not really full breakfast there were three
0: (laughs) can you can you share with our plant strong audience what those were
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the first one was a sweet potato because I love sweet potatoes and I alternate them between orange and purple. So I love the purple ones. The Stokes sweet potatoes in particular are my favorite. Stokes. Yes. Oh, they're so gorgeous. That color. I'll just cut them and I steam them because if you steam them, the color is even better. So, so I love sweet potatoes. So I did that early in the morning. And then after that I had oatmeal. And so I did it with, they were like organic wild oats. I put ginger in it. I put cinnamon in it. I use soy milk. I love soy milk. Um, that's unsweetened organic. And then, um, Oh, I had a
0: a ginger, half a ginger, cinnamon, half a banana and soy milk. Okay. And so can you remember like roughly what time was that? And was like an hour after your sweet potato or two hours.
1: Yeah, so I had to go talk to the high school students. So I had half of it before I went to talk to the high school students. So that was about seven thirty. And then the yeah. other half, when I got back before I had a patient, because I had a patient right after. So I ate the other half around eight thirty. And then after I got done with my first patient, I had just—I guess it was a little snack. So I had some walnuts and I had some apricots.
0: <laughs> okay, and then, then you had then you had this wonderful bowl of oatmeal, mm-hmm. right? And then, what's your third breakfast?
1: Oh yeah, my third breakfast was the apricots and walnuts. Okay, okay,
0: okay. I'm. It's so really a I'm
1: snack. Yeah. Okay,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm tracking. I'm tracking. Um, now, and have you had, have you had lunch yet today?
1: No, not yet. I will not after yet. this probably. Okay. Okay. I love breakfast. Right. Breakfast is my favorite meal. When it comes to me, lunch and dinner, I, I have to kind of make myself eat. You know, I do, yeah. but it's hard. So you're
0: so tell me somebody that gets up typically at four oh seven and is living as large and wonderful as you are, what time do you typically like, what time does the head hit the pillow?
1: You know, I really try to uphold those kind of pillars of healthy living myself. So I really try, I, I would love to try to get seven hours of sleep, but I'm, I feel actually really good on six hours of sleep. So to answer your question, I try to go to bed between nine and 10 o'clock on most nights. And I'm usually pretty successful about that, but it gets a little hard depending on how busy I am with work. And if I feel like I'm not going to hit that six hours and I need it, I will wake up later. I will push it back to five o'clock and I'll miss my morning workout on those days and I'll work out in the evening. And I just am, I really believe in the importance of sleep. And if we don't have time to let our brain nurture itself and, and bathe itself to get those adequate hours of sleep, then we're not going to be as functional the next day. So I really try to get at a minimum six hours, but really ideally we should try to hit seven hours if, if we're. Yeah. No,
0: about you're, you're today. right. There's so much research coming out about the benefit <laughs> of sleep and uh, Matthew Walker's book and others, yeah. you know, why we, why we sleep. So, mm.
1: yeah.
0: Um, well, Dawn, this has been so fabulous I can't even you know tell you how much I have garnered from our, our time together today and I know everybody's just gonna like ah oh, literally eat this up <laughs> eat you up you're th- this incredible journey of uh, that you've had uh, on your life and and the joy and the smile and the love for life that you now you know exude is just so powerful uh, Powerful! What a gift! What a gift you are to, mm. to to this planet. Thank you.
1: Well, you're you're very kind. I, I thank you for those very kind words, and I feel like life has just been a gift to me. And Rip, all of your work is a gift to people. You have no idea when when Carrie had mentioned that I would get to meet you, I was like oh my gosh. And I actually got to meet your dad uh, not too long ago. He did a talk at Mayo Clinic and your mom kind of put her little happy face around the corner to introduce herself. And I was just tickled. So uh. I just love her energy. And but thank you for your kind words and all the amazing work you do to help people stay healthy because it matters. And it really matters, especially if you ever get a diagnosis of something you're not expecting. You can flourish during And after that, because you took good care of your life, and that matters. And, oh, this is what I was going to say. You know, I was talking about energy and cells oscillating. So the food we eat, if you eat food from a factory, there is zero vibrational energy from that. If you want to kind of get on this, like, really weird conversation stuff. But you get zero energy back. If you eat plant food, you're getting food from the earth. That's why. Have you ever met someone who eats a plant-based diet who is, like, <laughs> you don't. They're all like us. They're all happy people. So, you know, if people don't want to eat healthy for any other way, everyone wants to be happy, you know. So try it just to see how good you feel. You know, I don't believe in making people scared. So if people have breast cancer and they're doing it because they're scared of dying, I try to quickly get them to the fact that you're going to mainly be doing this because you're going to feel alive and that's why we're curing you of your cancer so you feel alive so when you eat like this you're going to feel like me and this is awesome let me tell you it's a great place to be yeah
0: yeah, yeah. um don i i gotta say goodbye i hate saying goodbye but this is the first goodbye and i'm going to hopefully have lots of uh you know hellos uh in the future but will you give no, me a great. nice plant strong fist yeah. bump on the way out here. Bye. All right. Bye. Oh, wait. Blance there, on. bye. There, there we go. There we go. There, all right, bye, Bob. Dawn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Dawn is all heart, literally and figuratively, and represents such a shining example of grace and gratitude. If you're as inspired as I am, I hope that you'll give her a big kale, yeah, shout out on the socials. We'll have all of her links in the show notes on the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening and keep it plant strong until next time. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kortowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Ann Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.